Church in Texas, where I was baptized and confirmed, above the main altar, there's a grand window called Saints of the Church. And in the lower right panel of that window, there once was a portrait in stained glass of one of the most famous Episcopalians of the 19th century. Born in 1807, this individual was the son of a leader of the American Revolution, a professional military man. During his lifetime, he was considered the model of a Christian gentleman. He was raised in the Episcopal Church, attended Sunday services faithfully throughout his life, and served in lay leadership positions. In fact, his last social engagement prior to his death was a vestry meeting. After his death in 1870, he was memorialized in various churches he had attended, from Brooklyn, New York, to Alexandria, Virginia, and the church he was attending at the time of his death was actually renamed in his honor. And so, Grace Episcopal Church in Lexington, Virginia, became the Robert E. Lee Memorial Church. Now, some 60 years before Lee's birth, Absalom Jones was born into bondage in 1746 on a plantation in the Delaware Colony. There does not appear to be any record of his parents' identities. They were either stolen from Africa themselves or were born to people who were. At a very young age, Absalom was assigned to work in the fields. But things changed. As he wrote in an autobiographical sketch later in his life, I was small when my master took me from the field to wait and attend on him in the house. His master's guests would sometimes give him small tips, and he saved up this money to buy textbooks of grammar and spelling. And by his teenage years, if Absalom wasn't working, he was reading. At the age of 16, he was separated from his family, as happened to so many. Uh, his mother and his brothers and his sisters were all sold away, and he was taken to Philadelphia to work in his master's store. At night, he was permitted to attend a Quaker school, and at the age of 20, to get married. And he was able to raise money among the Quaker community in Philadelphia to purchase his wife's freedom from her master. And finally, in 1784, his own master granted him manumission, that is, a legal relief from the status of being enslaved. His enslavers' family were devout Anglicans, and Absalom would have grown up with the Book of Common Prayer. But once he became a free man, he began worshiping in a Methodist 
congregation in Philadelphia, a congregation that was integrated, black people and white people praying alongside each other. But this did not last for long, and when church leaders instituted segregation in that Methodist congregation and ordered the black members to sit in the gallery, Absalom led a walkout. So it was that Absalom became one of the organizers in 1792 of the African Church of Philadelphia, whose members soon voted with the, with the Episcopal Church. Absalom began as a lay reader, was ordained as a deacon in 1795, and answered God's call to the priesthood on September 21st, 1802, when he was ordained as the first black priest in the Episcopal Church. In 1807, our Congress voted to prohibit the further importation of kidnapped Africans into the territory of the United States. And the British Parliament that same year also voted to abolish the international slave trade. Now, although neither of these legislative actions abolished slavery itself, they were understandably seen as a tremendous stride in that direction. And at the African Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, there was a service of Thanksgiving on January 1st, 1808, the effective date of that new law in the United States. The Reverend Absalom Jones delivered an address that was later published as a pamphlet entitled, A Thanksgiving Sermon Preached January 1st, 1808, on account of the abolition of the African slave trade by the United States Congress on that day. As if speaking to the continent of Africa, Jones thunders, Dear land of our ancestors, thou shalt no more be stained with the blood of thy children shed by British and American hands. Jones notes in the sermon that just as the Israelites had been in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years before their liberation, his own people had endured much suffering before this deliverance. God's ways are mysterious, he says, but he expresses confidence that God has, quote-unquote, wise reasons for them. Jones is also confident that God hears the cries of the oppressed and distressed, as he puts it, that every tear they shed is preserved, and that every groan of the suffering is recorded in heaven. Now, he was no doubt constrained by social and political circumstances on that New Year's Day in 1808 from explicitly calling for the immediate abolition of slavery in the United States. But he expresses thanks to God for the state legislatures that have already abolished slavery. And he ends his sermon with a prayer for the United States to be delivered from the calamities of war and slavery, and that it will be a safe and peaceful refuge for all people for all the ages to come. Jones's 1808 sermon is infused with a spirit of optimism, optimism that the condition of enslaved persons already inside the United States 
will be improved and that the end of slavery was in sight. As I imagine him delivering that hopeful sermon on a cold New Year's Day in 1808 in Philadelphia, I picture him in the pulpit, the kind of weak January sun streaming through the clear windows, and they wouldn't have been stained glass in those days. When I imagine that, I know that I know that his optimism was misplaced, and that's heartbreaking. Things were actually about to get much worse. A few years later, after he delivered that sermon, the lands and territories now known as the states of Mississippi and Alabama were opened to settlement by white Americans. And in the decades leading up to the Civil War, those lands were transformed into a massive cotton factory. Essentially, everyone who lived there, white or enslaved, participated in some way in the cotton economy, in the production of cotton and its sale on the international market. There developed a cool and extensive domestic slave trade within the United States in those decades. Black people who were born in places like Virginia and Kentucky were trafficked to the Deep South. The enslaved, both men and women, were worked mercilessly, even to death, to feed the insatiable demand for cotton. In 1841, Abraham Lincoln wrote to a friend about seeing a group of slaves from Kentucky being transported south to work in the cotton fields. They were, as he described it, strung together with chains like so many fish on a trot line. They were going, Lincoln continued, into perpetual slavery in a place where the lash of the master is proverbially more ruthless than in any other place. The saying that has survived down to our own day about being sold down the river originates at this time. It was a byword for horror and misery. Black men and women were known to commit suicide to avoid being sent down the river, down south to the cotton fields, just as some of their ancestors had drowned themselves in the sea off of Africa to avoid the Middle Passage. As we all know, it took a bloody war to finally abolish slavery in law in the United States. And when slavery was replaced with systems of discrimination and oppression that were enforced both by government and by violent mobs, it took another hundred years to get the Voting Rights Act. And Robert E. Lee gazed down from that stained glass window in my church in Texas until 2018. That year, the panel containing Lee was replaced with a new panel that depicts two true saints of our Episcopal Church. Jonathan Daniels, the uh, seminarian who was martyred in Alabama in 1965, and the Reverend Absalom Jones, priest. So why the long-winded history lesson on this holiday weekend? What lessons can we draw from that history? 
Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But we often forget the part about it being long. We just want to hear the second part. American optimism, of which Absalom Jones's sermon is a prime example, is often regarded as one of our best national characteristics, and understandably so. Optimism gives us energy and provides us with motivation. It helps us overcome obstacles and prevents us from giving up when we suffer a setback. There is, however, a dark side to American optimism, particularly when it comes to the question of race and the history of oppression of black people in America. We can be blind to the persistence of anti-black racism and regard it as something of the past, as something that's been solved. We can fall into thinking that progress moves in a straight line and that it can't be reversed. But of course, if things had turned out as Absalom Jones allowed himself to hope in 1808, there would have been no civil war, no Jim Crow, and no lynching. Instead, Black Americans would have taken their rightful place alongside white Americans in the 19th century. And Robert E. Lee would never have achieved his fame, let alone been commemorated in a stained glass window. And optimism can even seduce us into resentment and paranoia. If our politics is messed up, if our economy isn't working the way we think it should, then there must be people who are getting something they don't deserve or seeking an unfair advantage or intentionally undermining the American way of life. So on this Martin Luther King Day weekend, where we commemorate Blessed Martin and Blessed Absalom Jones and all others who answered God's call to work for justice, Let's go forth into the world without fear and resentment, but with the awareness that the work is not finished, may never be finished. And let us do so with the faith and optimism that our ancestor in the faith, Absalom Jones, had that America can fulfill its promises to all people. Please join me in heart and mind as I conclude with a prayer written by Alan Payton, who was uh, a novelist and an anti-apartheid campaigner in South Africa. O Lord, open my eyes that I may see the needs of others. Open my ears that I may hear their cries. Open my heart so that they need not be without succor. Let me not be afraid to defend the weak because of the anger of the strong, nor afraid to defend the poor because of the anger of the rich. Show me where love and hope and faith are needed, and use me to bring them to those places. And so open my eyes and my ears that I may this coming day 
be able to do some work of peace for you. Amen.